why do you keep going through all of this? Why haven't you just said, uh, you know, we, we gave it our best college try. Uh, we're done. Cause well, multiple reasons. One is it's the adventure. It's, 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 it's solving the unsolved. That's part of it. Second thing is we, we've gotten to know many people, um, there who have become almost like family. They're, they're dear friends and they've, they've sacrificed much to help us. And we just don't want to make their sacrifice in vain. And we've also become friends with the family members who believe in us. We're their last hope. And if it, and if we drop it, then this story will go cold. So we're the last, we're the last ones carrying the torch and we want to finish what we started. Welcome to Game of Crimes. This flight that she's on where she disappeared, what was the purpose of the flight uh, Intelligence collection. Publicly, it's just around the world stunt. You know, have a woman fly around the world. You know, that was that was the whole thing for Putnam to sell books. But it was really, um, that was, that's what it was initially. But then when the Air Force got involved, they wanted her to fly over the Marshall Islands to see what the Japanese were up to because it was a closed space. No one was allowed to go inside there. And at the time, the Japanese Navy was very, very strong. And they're they're enforcing that area. It's a no-fly zone. Well, let, let me tell you, there is a theory behind why you would use a woman, because that was one of the operations uh, during the Soviet Union. It was at what would, Moscow was a denied area. And that was the first female case officer they'd ever had. She got rolled up um, um, with a huge asset, I believe it was called Trigon. But the, the 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 KGB never suspected a woman. That's why they did it because they were so parochial and they were so you know sexist about oh yeah a woman's not smart enough to do this. And I think mm-hmm. if you think about that, the the Japanese being very hierarchical like they are and patriarchal, you know, and it's the 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 way it's structured is it would seem to me is that using a woman to conduct uh, you know espionage for you would fl- no no pun intended would fly under the radar. In so many areas, they would see her as being a stunt and nobody would really take her seriously. So therefore, if you don't take her seriously, why would you want to search the plane? Other, But if you get a Charles Lindbergh, that'd be a little different. You know, you get a male. Now everybody, ah, what's this guy doing here? You know, just mm-hmm. just Morgan's uh, quick two cents, uh, you know, my my qu- uh, quarter bit analysis there for you. Sure, sure. Well, that was a continuation for you to continue on. <laughs> Awkward pauses are very bad in podcasts. So. <laughs> no, and so the the Japanese, they, as you say, they were very hierarchical, and I think they are, the government was more counting on her celebrity uh, ship to protect her, to give her some kind of, you know, and the Japanese could use the government say, hey, we we did something the U.S. Navy couldn't do. We found her the U.S. Navy couldn't do. So what they did is when they recovered her aircraft and they put it onto a barge and they shipped it to, to Saipan, uh, they started pulling it apart. They were reverse engineering it, you know, just to see what's different with the engines and things like that. And that's, I think, when they discovered the camera because there are there are multiple eyewitness accounts who say that when she was in a prison cell on Saipan, that the people who the Japanese who were working there were arguing. They had an argument over not who she was, but why she was there. Some were saying she was a guest of the emperor. The other ones were saying she was a spy. So no one, no one at all didn't, didn't disagree that who she was. I mean, she was the short-haired flying lady, a woman who mm-hmm. wore pants, you know, which was like crazy at those days. 
Um, now, how did they come in possession of her airplane? So it crash landed because what she was doing is um, she turns off her radio like 30 minutes after she leaves. Uh, and again, let me just add a proviso here. I am not an Amelia Earhart expert. That's not my subject matter where I study. I, I've studied the Clipper. I know based on Amelia on other people's research, not in my own. I've done some, but nothing groundbreaking. So but from you what I'm yeah. But you can tell guy works for the government because he has to provide, you know, 47 disclaimers. <laughs> it is not my reason. You know, OK, no, we get we're not we'll get into the Clipper. But, you know, it's kind of the context for that, too, kind of leads in uh, the, the, the Amelia and the Clipper are tied together historically. Right. So the, her, the guy on board uh, with her is, is Fred Noonan. And he is at that time, he was the world's best celestial navigator. He was not a, a radio guy, but he was a slush knight. And you need something like that, you know, with a sextant shooting through the, the windows, figuring out where you are, especially when you're flying at night. So what happens is they leave Ley, New Guinea, and then immediately pretty much they they communicate with the uh, with the radio ground operators saying, hey, we're going dark. We're turning off our radio. Why would you do that? Especially when Pan Am has been training you to always communicate at the top and the bottom of the hour, your location, your altitude, your speed barometric pressure, everything you need to know that if you crash or you disappear between your check-in points, that they'll know it within an area of where you are to search for you. Makes That's it a very do... small radius so that, you know, you, you put assets out there. You don't want to be searching the whole ocean. At least we know where the last point was, where she should have been, and now we've got a search area. Right. And that's exactly how we discovered the oil slick for the Hawaii Clipper, because they were communicating at the top and the bottom of the hour where they were. So same thing for Amelia Earhart. So why would you turn off your radio as soon as you leave? Well, that's because you don't want the Japanese who are tracking you like we're tracking you. Because every time you, you give your location, they're tracking to see where you are. Well, if you're flying in their airspace, they're going to know where you are and they're going to go shoot you down. So she turns off her radio in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which is massive. You know, why would you do that? Well, that's because at the time, and if you read her book, she said that she was flying her plane under wraps, which means she's flying it faster than what the published, published speed was. So she's flying really fast, and she's going up, and she's shooting north to the Marshall Islands to photograph it. Then she's got to swing south towards Millie Atoll. She's, she's headed to Howland Island. Well... If she had flown straight directly from Papua New Guinea to Halanai Atoll, she would have probably had around four hours of fuel flight time to circle and look for that place. She didn't have that luxury because she flew north. She's flying it really, really fast. And then she's got to fly south to get to Howland Island around the same time she would have gotten there if she had flown straight. Things she also didn't account for is the headwind that she was receiving as well when she was flying south. So she's chewing through her fuel and she's on vapor. So most pilots, when they're flying over the Pacific, they're always looking for places they can land. You know, any kind of near an island or an atoll, someplace that they can swim to, that they can get to if their aircraft sinks. So she's looking over that and she's starting to panic. And then finally, when she decides, oh, I'm not going to make Howland Island, I'm going to run out of gas because I don't see it. And I'm, I'm going up and down and looking for it. She's panicking. She decides to turn back and fly to Millie Atoll and she crash lands there where debris from an Electra 10E was found. So what are the odds of, of the actual metallurgy research saying, yeah, this came from a 10E aircraft specifically because of the, of the metallurgical assets that are inside of the metal that it was hand rolled not machine rolled you know all these things 
and the ja- and they and they found the 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 apparatus that the Japanese used to put her plane on a barge, as eyewitnesses from the islands said that was there. So all the evidence that that Murphy would be looking for to show that this was what happened happened here is still there on the island to this day. Well, and how many tennies were flying in that area at that time? So it's kind of like through the process of elimination. It's like if there's only if there's one tenny recovered and that's the only one in the area, you kind of go, why is it not Amelia's plane? Right. I think it was very few. I, I don't have a number for you, but I know it was it was it was probably less than seven. Well, we're gonna or, need that done by the end of the podcast. Okay, guys. So just <laughs> awesome. um we, we need to get some clarity here. Go Murph. Plus you didn't have the navigational aids that you have today, because we're talking nineteen thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Um but now the the radio communications as well, they didn't have the distance that we have today where you can you can communicate via radio pretty much around the world. So there's limitations on on who she could talk to, right? That who can hear her when she communicates. So who was she talking to, to to report her position? She was talking to the Navy. She was talking to Pan Am. She was talking to the Coast Guard. The U.S. Coast Guard. Correct. And what the heck are they doing out in the South Pacific? Well, basically, they're there as as picket planes to pick her up in case she crashes to get her. Uh, you have the Itasca, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter, the Itasca, blowing smoke at Howland Island so she could see it during the day. And they're communicating, you know, with her. But she's bouncing around the the dials, and she was known as not a very good uh, radio operator. She was very... She did not uh, use radio etiquette at the time. She would say out and just turn things off instead of waiting for other people to close and say, okay, roger that out. There's a lot of things she did not do correctly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so is it fair to surmise that we had U.S. military assets out there specifically to track her. We wouldn't do that just for her to, to create a record of being the first woman to fly around no, the world, would we? No, we had submarines out there. We had aircraft. We had spotters on islands. I mean, that was it was a real deal military op going on, well, and the Japanese knew it. You know how the U.S. military is about paperwork and reports and stuff? Is Has any of that been discovered? Because there has to be an op plan somewhere. There has to be communications written about what the Navy was... I mean, we know about every freaking secret classified spy operation that's going on pretty much from World War II now. Where, where is the documentation? Where is the, you know, the reports on that? I would I would actually um, beg to differ with you on that one because oh a lot controversy of, we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a fight okay good I love a good one there's a lot of documents you know for example like I was researching this operation called Operation Baby Blanket no Cotton Baby Blanket and I pulled the cards and I found all the cards at the uh, the National Archives for this operation that was happening right as the Hawaii Clipper vanished that we were intercepting Japanese information from Japan through the American attache there. And no one can tell me what this was, where it was, or where it went. And there's a lot of things. In fact, uh, one of the people on our board is the ex-director of the NSA, uh, Admiral Bill Studeman. He, he also, him and his wife both worked for Pan Am. His parents worked for Pan Am. And he was also the director of the C- the the director of the NSA, the deputy director of the CIA, and the director of the Office of Naval Intelligence when I was at ONI. He was my boss. And he has been a collaborator with me. He's actually found documents, boxes that are still sealed that have to do with Amelia Earhart that will not be opened, that, that were closed because of mold fumigation. And they're still closed because of mold fumigation. 
So there are documents out there that are still unsealed that but, deal with her. But, but my point is they exist, right? It's the some, some of them. Some of them are purged. Some of them exist, right? Yeah, and that's some what I'm saying. Purged. But so I mean, part of your challenge, right, is digging through the labyrinth of archives and records. And even though cards may exist at the National Archives, they point to something. Why would the United States to this day, and we need to, what we need to do is from here kind of move into the lost clipper now. Um, but why would the United States to this day push back against bringing those records forward? I mean, it's, look, the war is over. We won. Um, mm -hmm. Japan and the U.S. Were, were in lockstep. In fact, we have a common enemy. But when you think of North Korea and China and all of these other things, um, why would today, why would there still be such pushback in terms of declassifying or per permitting access to these records? That's actually an easy question to answer. Uh, the reason is, is because it's not so much the government, it's elements within the government. Um, like I said earlier, in Japan, you had various factions of going on. I can't believe you're clipping your nails during my answer. You're clipping your nails during my answer. I'm giving you great gold here, and there you're chopping your fingernails. You know, I can multitask, and you know the reason I'm doing it? Because you're part female. Uh, no, um, it's that, that, that's very true. No, no, um, I have a I have a procedure coming up tomorrow that I don't want to go into detail on, and so um, I have to. It doesn't have, involve a speedo, does it? it uh, pretty close, pretty close <laughs> to that area. You're, you're in the right area. <laughs> Yeah, you know what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. so, so you're going to the vet tomorrow? Uh, you might say that, yes. <laughs> He's going to go get neutered. <laughs> uh, that, that happened years ago, dude. I'm married, remember? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Back to our regularly scheduled. So you said it's very simple. So, But how could Japan prevent the opening of records in the United States? It's, it's not so much that. It's that there is a, a common thread between um, people... Uh, industrialists, you know, within the government. So you you have Americans, you have Japanese, you have Koreans, you have all these, but there are elements within the, who are like these international businessmen, almost like what Eisenhower said, beware the national the military industrial complex. Yeah, exactly. I mean, quick pause. Uh, do you know what ended World War One? Uh, well, I mean, that's kind of a loaded question. I could say because the Germans surrendered. That's what ended World War One. Sure, what made them <laughs> surrender? Um, good question. I mean, there's the, tr I mean, obviously we'll talk about, it ended up being the Treaty of Versailles, which is what pissed Hitler off. And that's what, uh, began their, you know, rebuilding of the army. I, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I've always assumed it was just, uh, you know, the U S winning the battles, uh, the loss All right, of life. What ended, what ended world war one? Well, this is, this is the thing. See, so how this is connected is that when general Pershing arrives in 1918 into, uh, the, the, the French countryside to fight the Germans. The French and the British are arguing which flag the Americans are going to fight under. And he says, no, we're going to fight under the American flag. We're our own uh, you know, sovereign nation. So he starts having reconnaissance flights flown over and pictures actually taken of the, Japan, or the German positions. And he sees that there is a German ammunition, ammunition facility, a factory, a massive factory within artillery range. So he, he draws up his battle plan. And he says, oh, yeah, we're going to blow up the, the German ammunition factory. And the French and the British generals are appalled. They're like, you can't do that. And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, no, no, there's a treaty. We're, we're not allowed to attack their ammo facilities, and they can't attack ours. So he calls Wilson, and he says, is this true? He says, yeah, you, 
you have to find another way. You cannot destroy their armament factory system. It's it's a pre-existing treaty situation. Even though we're from different countries and fighting this world war, <laughs> we cannot Jeez. blow up the things that are causing them to shoot at us. The Germans and the British and the French all had their own independent facilities that were not even touched. They had to apologize if a shell landed near it to each other. So Pershing doesn't expect a thing. He blows up a six-mile radius around this thing, destroys every road, every rail line, every path. A horse cannot walk through these big guns. He, he blows the snot out of it. The Germans, uh, 10 weeks later, run out of bullets. They can't fight the war anymore. They run out. So what happens is they surrender because they've run out of ammunition. The French infantrymen in the in the trenches are so incensed that they they have a um a um, what do they call that a mutiny they mutiny in the lines and the french leadership at the time reinstates the roman practice of decimation they take one out of every 10 in the line and shoot them execute them for mutiny that's called decimation. That's what the, the uh, Romans used to do. People actually use that phrase incorrectly because they say it was decimated. Well, deca, you know, is, one, ten. is 10, right? So you're talking right. about one-tenth. When you decimate something, it's reducing it by uh, order of magnitude of one, you know, one out of 10. Right. So one out of every 10 French soldiers after the war ended were shot by their own side because of mutiny. So going back to this story is, is that you have organizations within the governments who are collaborating on the same thing, even though they're they're politically opposed because of war, they're still on the same thing. They're still entrenched in making money. And that's the same thing with at the time with the Germans, the Japanese, the Americans, is because you have businessmen. I mean, if you think about the the guy who who was who the um, Dulles Airport is named after. Alan Dulles, uh, yeah. Alan Dulles has Japan in 1952 forgiven of all their war crimes and debt. They no longer have to pay the United States any war reparations. Even though Germany and Italy do, Japan does not in 1952. Why? That's all connected to this one thread through the Hawaii Clipper that if you pull a thread, it's going to pull other threads and other threads and other threads, and the whole tapestry of secrecy is going to become unraveled. So that's why the Hawaii Clipper, along with a whole bunch of other stories, are not being revealed because they're all connected to each other. Wow. So, uh, so I want to be, I, I want to, um, uh, you know, so the Catholic church, um, you know, they would have what they call the devil's advocate, you know, mm -hmm. you guys familiar with that? Yes. So when you do, a, no. when, when you go to declare a miracle, um, it's usually a capuchin friar, but that plays the devil's advocate. So what they have to do is they have to do everything they can to disprove it. And if you can't disprove it, then the church ordains it to be a miracle. So I'm going to be a devil's advocate. I would just tell you, I mean, we're having this is a good discussion too, but I just want to, I almost get the feelings that this is like, I'm, I'm watching uh, the Da Vinci code and we're talking about the Illuminati here because this sounds like, I'm, I'm sorry, man, this sounds like a global conspiracy. I mean, it's, it's tough for people to get their heads around this because I'm, well, I, I get the money part, right. But mm -hmm. no secret stays secret forever. I mean, that, are you sure about that? Well, you know, let's put it this way, unless we're talking Area 51 and aliens, and guess what? The UFOs coming out, you know, who's on the grassy knoll? I get it. There may be some things, but I'm saying, you know how it works in, in these three-letter agencies, things that you think are the absolute most secret thing. Um, nature has a way of, of finding out a lot of these secrets. All I'm saying is I find it um, intriguing that after all these years, some uh, official piece of documentation hasn't been surfaced to say, 
yep, this is what they did, and and instead rely on people like you and Murph and other people to piece all these things together. Right. Well, I, and, I, and go ahead. I, I think once we get into the uh, move into the Lost Clipper and and uh, guy starts revealing some of the the clues that he's found throughout this long investigation, you know, I mean, there's bits and pieces out there that really strongly suggest what was going on. Right. And I think that at the end of the day, the, 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 the critical bits and pieces that we're looking for are the remains of the humans. You know, if we find them in Micronesia, then that's to me, the smoking gun, because then that answers that they were on a, they believe they died believing they were on a ransom mission <clears throat> for Amelia Earhart because they told their family that. Well, if you find flag. bodies on the island, they, they obviously then the bodies didn't weren't in the ocean. They, they you would not have been mm-hmm. able to really recover all of those that far out, right? So that means they would have been tra- somebody had custody of them, transported them to land, and then buried them because you know their evidence of the evidence. Yeah, right, and that they were killed not by uh, a weapon, but they were killed by poison because they were the eyewitnesses said there was no mark of death upon them. So if we find the remains, then we know that that part of the story is true, that these guys actually did die. And that MacArthur, the story of MacArthur seeing the Hawaii Clipper intact in Japan in 1946, and his two eyewitnesses next to him was Admiral Towers, who became the Pan Am um, uh, president. Or, uh, no, he became um, the well, he became the vice president of Pan Am Airways in 1947. And in a memo, told Juan Tripp, hey, I saw the Hawaii Clipper in Japan after the war, and MacArthur burned it down. On the other side of MacArthur is uh, General Sutherland, who was the best friend of Ted Winan, who was a passenger on the Hawaii Clipper. He phone calls Ted Winan's widow and says, hey, we found out what happened to Ted. The Japanese killed him. So you have two very, very you know, distinguished eyewitnesses seeing the Hawaii Clipper intact in 1946, <clears throat> which shows why there was no debris field ever found. And let's, let's, I want to ask you one question about that, but then let's go back and let's work our way through the story. So why would Japan keep evidence of a crime for eight years? Well, I would think part, I mean, I don't know, but part of me is it didn't have its engines on board. So that was one thing. They had their plane there and, you know, they loved looking at other people's technology. I mean, there were two Japanese agents arrested by the FBI the night before the maiden flight of the China Clipper to Hawaii. They were miscalibrating the the, um, the compass on board. Um, and they were, so they were known, they they were caught, uh, Japanese agents were craw- crawling all over uh, Howard Hughes's H-1 racer. And that's the predecessor to the Zero uh, aircraft. So we know that they liked that technology and they, they might've thought it was a beautiful, there's all kinds of reasons. It was in parts. It wasn't completely intact, but it was in parts, parts. but it was still there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's go back then. Let's talk about then your your progress, because at some point you get involved with Murph and JP. You guys are going to launch a mission. But at what point, what point do you start going, hey, I've got something here. So you've done this research. You've got the guy who did the original stuff on Amelia Earhart, but this leads you to the Lost Clipper. So when did the idea for the Lost Clipper project come to you? And, you know, and it's obviously taken more form, you know, over the years. But when did you come to this realization that go, hey, this, because the reason I say that this is 1938, this, if if they did what you say they did, this constitutes basically uh, hijacking at seas. You know, this is piracy. This is kidnapping of U.S. citizens. This is the first shot fired, you know, in the war between the U.S. and Japan uh, prior to December seventh, nineteen forty-one, a day which will live in infamy, obviously. Absolutely. And so this is this is three years prior. So let's walk through how you got into that, 
what made you decide to turn this into, like you said, you've turned this into an LLC, the Lost Clipper LLC. This is a project. What, let's, let's walk through that whole thought process now. Sure. So I'm at DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. I'm a student at the Joint Military Intelligence College. I'm working on my thesis, and I'm in a library there. And I find a book called a Fix on the Rising Sun by Charlie Hill. And in it, he describes the, the theory that the Hawaii Clipper was hijacked by the Japanese. So that's that's the first thing that I see. And I'm like, okay, this is fascinating. So I start doing more research. And he refers a book by Ron Jackson, Ron Jackson called The China Clipper. It was actually more about the Hawaii Clipper. And in that book, he describes the 15 passengers and crew, uh, 13 Caucasians, an Asian and Hispanic, Jose Seceda, who was the third pilot. This goes. This connects to Joe Gervais in 1964 taking a picture of the slab, saying that there were 13 Caucasians, an Asian, and a dark guy, Jose Seceda. So I start putting these clues together, and then I start doing other research. I start pulling imagery that I can of Micronesia, any history, anything I can. Uh, I find I decide I need to go to Micronesia. So um, I buy a ticket, and I fly by myself to the other side of the planet to someplace I've never been, get off and, and start walking around and looking around for this island. I make, make a great friend there who, who runs a hotel there, and um, we become friends, and he, and, he, and he loves the project, loves the idea, never heard of it, and he starts helping me interview locals, gathering data, and I spend about 10 days there. I don't find any slab. I find 1,300 slabs. And I realized, oh my goodness, uh, it's not so much as going to one concrete slab that's that's 30 by 60 oriented north, you know, uh, that used to be a Navy hospital. There's there's there were 50,000 people on this island at one time. There's only 200 now, and it's and it's primitive. There's no electricity. There's no roads. It's very very. How did primitive. you know? How did you narrow down which island to be on? Like you said, there's what 2,500 islands. Right. Uh, so in, in both books, the island is described as Tonawas, which is Dublin Island, which it was during World War II. So there's only one island named that. So you can go right to that island. Okay. Even though I look at five others around it, because I just wanted to make sure, you know, that I it wasn't misclassified. Because you have to look at that. You can't just go directly 100%. Oh, this is it. You got you to gotta discriminate everything else, eliminate everything else. And what else was, what, what, what else was on the island of Tonawas? Well, Tonawas uh, had the main uh, U.S. I mean, had the main Japanese Navy hospital. They also had an Army hospital on board. All the other ones had like uh, infirmaries, uh, but no hospital. And and there was specific. They were at a hospital, so that's what the Fourth Fleet Hospital was there for the for the Japanese. So these slabs that we're talking about, um, when you say slabs, we're not talking about slabs that were poured just to bury bodies, but these were slabs that were the foundation for many of the military buildings that were out there. Correct. Correct. Movie theaters, bike shops, waffle houses. <laughs> wow. Okay. Not they're equivalent. <laughs> yeah. And um so thirteen hundred of these things. So You've now got a couple additional problems, right? Which is now you've got, if they're there, you've got to, you know, you can't financially, unless you've got a Mark Cuban or a Elon Musk that says, hey, here's a billion dollars. It's very right. difficult to start searching for these things. So what's your process after that? You know, being an intelligence guy, right? You got to start looking right. at, okay, right. What, what, what's my next course of action? What makes the most intelligent? What's the next most logical thing for me to do to narrow down the things I have to look at? Because you're going on the assumption that the bodies are there. In other words, that's your premise. The bodies are there. Now, the question is, right. how do I find the bodies? So how do you find the bodies? 
So you dig deeper. And so part of that is I, I, I met with a, a Jesuit priest who they run a facility in Xavier. It's called Xavier College there, Xavier School. And the Jesuits have had a presence in Micronesia since uh, the late 1800s. So they, they kept really excellent records of, of, of all the activities that were happening. And part of those records was the building of, of some of these structures. And I was starting to be able to, to eliminate what structures were, were pre-World War II and which were post-World War II. And 1938 was at the very, very beginning of the building spree that the Japanese Navy was doing on the island. So I was able to find and isolate structures that were predating World War II, which was the majority of them. I'd say 80% of them. So that eliminated a lot of them. Then I had to look at the location. Uh, the location of this lab was on Unamakur Mountain. Well, that's pretty easy to find and and what was there. And then the description of it being near a busy road section. Well, there's only two road sections. So that took it down. Then on top of that, I found the original film roll that Joe Gervais took. He took slide film. And I was able to actually find the original slides and put them in order because on each slide, uh, there's a number of the frame, which frame it was taken. So at the University of Texas, I found this and I laid them out. And then with the pictures, I could see with a map of the location since I had been there twice now of what his, his route that he walked, taking these pictures and where the slab was. So on my third trip, um, I went back to the island and I actually found the location of where the slab was uh, because of a post. There was only uh, the Japanese build these posts of significance. Whenever they put them in front of a building, they'll put a big vertical sign saying, this is the post office. This is the Japanese dentistry building. This is the whatever. So now I, I had a confirmation of the post and the facility of where it was. Well, you just said a word. You said where it was. Correct. So when you got there, it wasn't there or? We didn't know. We found we found various slabs, but we didn't have the process of having ground penetrating radar to look through the slab. Okay. Uh, we, we, they, were, they were about the right size. They were in the right location, but, but there were still probably about three, three or four slabs and that were candidates. How big are these slabs? 30 by 30 and 30 by 60. And how, how deep do they go? Uh, some of them were only three or four inches deep, so not that much. So we were we were under under the impression that they were built the slabs were poured over them, so they'd be like a foot thick. Not at all. Uh, we now understood that the way the Japanese did the construction, we had an actual Japanese construction expert from the Philippines there who could tell the difference between you know the aggregate material used in the slab if it was pre or post World War II, if it was pre. You know, when the Japanese were using uh, cement as opposed to coral, finger coral as their aggregate. So we could tell what, what medium was being used at what age it was. And we found out that what they would have done is they would just lay them down and just poured concrete rebar over them and then built a structure on it because it was mostly wooden structures on top of them. So they wouldn't be carrying a lot of weight. So they would actually be thin. So you'd only be covering the bodies, but the bodies would still be exposed to the ground or beneath it. They weren't fully encased entombed in concrete as we thought they would be like we would do in the western world they wouldn't do that they would just pour it over and it would just be rough and just finish it off and build something on on top of it why why not just take the bodies out on a freighter and put them in an oil can and dump them never to be seen again i mean that seems like an awful lot of work 
So at the time, the Japanese Navy and the, and the Army were at odds with each other because they were trying to control the government. The Army was actually in charge of the government under General Tojo. So he was taking most of the money from the, the diet, the Japanese diet, the government there, and sending it into China, their invasion of China, because they're exploiting all the raw materials that they needed for their war fighting. Um, the, the Navy wanted to fight too. They wanted their, their pound of flesh. So it is believed that the, the, when the Japanese, um, the Yakuza guys who are Navy officers, junior officers within the, the Yakuza, they had these bodies. They decided to use them as um, blackmail against the army, and they basically said, "We're gonna, we're gonna, we did this, and we're gonna tune them. We're gonna hide them, and we're gonna use this. That if you don't give us the money that we need to create more infrastructure, more bases and stuff, we're gonna reveal to the Americans what happened, and then they're gonna come looking, and then they're, you're gonna have a fight on your hand." So they did that kind of stuff to each other all the time. <laughs> So they blackmailed sense, right? each other. They blackmailed <laughs> yeah. each other. Some things never change. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, long so, before the Purple Command came around, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So let's let's talk about what what how desperate were you to involve Murph and JP, and you know, and why did you need them at this time? It seems like you got a lot of things, you know, going for you. Why do you need to bring in some guy that, I mean. Barely could find his feet in the morning. I mean, you were, you know, of course he found Pablo. Okay, we get that. But, um, you know, now we're talking about 15 people. You know, what what possessed you to bring on these these guys and expand your operation? These guys are, are experts in reading people. Javier and Steve can look at a person and, and know pretty much if they're telling the truth or they're lying or they're being deceptive. I mean, they're expert, you know, at, at reading People And in fact, Javier, when we were in uh, San Antonio, Javier interviewed the daughter of one of the pilots of the Hawaii Clipper. And, and he asked her, and I filmed the whole thing, he asked her the same question maybe five different ways. And he would ask her other things, and then he'd come back to it. And, and, I, and I was watching him very masterfully, you know, ask these very similar questions to see if he got a different answer. What was the motivation? Would it, why was, why was she helping me? Was she looking for money? You know what? And it basically, he said that, look, we can tell when people are lying and she's telling the truth. You know, her father told her grandfather that he was on a rescue mission for Amelia Earhart. He was on a mission to bring back Amelia Earhart to the United States. So he, at least I know, died believing they were on a rescue mission for Amelia Hart because the whole crew was very nervous the night before they took off on this trip because of other eyewitnesses, uh, siblings of the pilots and the passengers saying, hey, they, they were really nervous about something. Something was going on. They were afraid the Japanese were going to intercept them. They never had this fear ever before. So there's all these little things. So, and then Murphy you know, is in Micronesia with me on trip number four. And he's interviewing these people and these, these children of eyewitnesses are saying, yeah, we, they told us they heard, you know, American songs being taught from people who were in, uh, in security were being controlled. They remembered seeing, having eyewitnesses, seeing multiple, like 15 Americans blindfolded in the back of a truck being taken before the war to this place for interrogation. Then they were walked across the street and executed. So he's able to see, cause I can't tell if these people are telling me a lie or filling my head with a story. They just, these guys all ask questions that I never even think about asking. And we're able to determine if they're being truthful or not. I don't have that skill, but they did. 
Well, Steve, you're such a stud then. Sir. <laughs> no, actually, but but that's but Steve, let me ask you, Murph. So I'm going to turn this around on you, uh, my little co-host here. You're going to be now the co-guest for just a minute. Mm-hmm. You know how difficult it is when you interview eyewitnesses. I mean, mm-hmm. eyewitnesses directly to a crime. Now you're interviewing basically third parties. You know, you've got hearsay, right? What's the challenge with trying to get make sure is that they're just not repeating something they heard from the next person? You know, you get this kind of circular intelligence going. You know, mm-hmm. what what are some of the challenges with making sure you you really get the right story and that it's independent of what somebody else said? Well, um, so you got to understand this island of Tonawas. There's no electricity. There's no running water, but it's inhabited, and and the people are sounds like West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, boy. Thank you, I've been waiting for that one. <laughs> for all my West Virginia friends, I'll be posting his address and phone number here later. So yeah. I'm, let me go get my banjo. <laughs> I have one in the basement. I'll teach you how to play. All right. So these these people have picked up, uh, uh, you know, as, as obviously as you can figure out, there's not a lot of industry in this area. So they have picked up the form of capitalism and the fact that if you want to cross walk across their property on the island of Tonawash, you're going to have to pay for it. If you want to talk to them, you're going to have to pay. If you want them to help with manual labor, you've got to give them, and we're not talking thousands of dollars. I mean, um, guy has probably spent that much, but, uh, you know, it could be five bucks. So now they're doing it for money rather than wanting to tell you a true story. So that's where you watch their mannerisms as you're asking questions to see, you know, do you see dollar signs in their eyes? Because, it's, you know, they may realize, I'm not sure that, that, and I'm certainly not ditzing the people in Tonawas because they were extremely nice to us, especially the police there. As, as much <laughs> if you call them the police, it was very, very primitive. <laughs> um, but, you know, if they realize that they can bait you with additional information, then that means more money in their pockets, right? So you just, you just have to uh, closely watch their mannerisms as you're talking to them. Are they averting eye contact with you? Are they lurking in certain, certain directions? Are they looking to some of their friends for support or maybe cues to like, you know, tell them about this or, you know, lead them in a different direction, that kind of thing. So that's what it boils down to. And it's, uh, I'm certainly not the world's best at that, but you know, with 38 years of people lying to me, (laughs) you kind of pick up a few things, you know what I mean? You mean like Steve, you're such a stud. Was that the liar? Was that the truth? That's the truth. Just ask me. I'll tell you. That's the truth. You can see him. (laughs) But, um, one thing also, um, and this is how depth in depth, guy was with his investigation on that third trip. Now that the third trip's when you brought Jeff Regal in, right? Correct. He went with you. And so you guys actually paid for people to let you examine a concrete slab, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and tell us about that. What what did that entail? Basically we had to get permission first from the governor of the state, then the mayor of the island, and then the clan leader of the area to just give us access and to look at that. And then we would have to pay access, you know, for anything we wanted to do. And we eventually, uh, we paid, um, actually our friend Bill paid $2,500 to have us take a jackhammer and drill through the foundation to see if we could find any bones. And we didn't find any bones because we found out later that the, the slab was too young. It was, the slab was poured in 1984. Not as we were led to believe that it was poured, 
you know, in the 30s or the 40s, you know, it was 1984. I'm like, well, why don't you tell us? Oh, we thought we did. Oh, <laughs> you know, but what we did find is we found medical materials, morphine bottles that were still intact, um, Japanese military hospital equipment um, that was buried deep, deep, deep. So we thought, okay, well, they're not in the slab, but we found out that this was at one time a medical facility here. The, the concrete slab is gone. So now the and the, the slab that you broke up, was there something sitting on that slab? Something sitting on the slab? Oh, there was a house. Yeah. So yeah, so we <laughs> oh, so just a, what was on that <laughs> He led you down the path, guy. Please, or it doesn't get <laughs> any easier than this. What was on That's the slab a... that had four walls and a roof? Oh, wait a minute. I know, I know. Yeah. We were drilling in someone's living room. <laughs> yeah. and, and so that's, but the, the whole significance of that is this is how in depth these guys are willing to go to try and uncover and solve this mystery. And, you know, and, and like I've said, we've, we've done some filming on this. It bring closure to 15 families who had, you know, family members just disappeared, just simply disappeared, never heard from again. Well, look, I mean, you doing stuff like this isn't cheap. And so what does that mean? I, I know that you're still raising money to work on this, and I want to get in more in depth on the case, but but why? I mean, at some point, why don't you just go, you know, I'm sorry, man, it's just too much. It's too expensive. Uh, it was fun while it lasted. And look, it's not easy to get to Micronesia. <laughs> I mean, no, you got to want to go to Micronesia. I have not yeah. been to Micronesia. I've been to Indonesia and Malaysia and, you know, uh, you know, New Zealand, Australia, I've been all over that area. And it's it's a tough road, even on commercial flights, mm -hmm. it's a tough road to get there. You guys are on some backwater stuff, you know, stuff you're not sure if it's going to work right. Why do you keep going through all of this? Why haven't you just said, eh, you know, we, we gave it our best college try, uh, we're done? Because, well, multiple reasons. One is it's the adventure. It's, 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 it's solving the unsolved. That's part of it. Second thing is we, we've gotten to know many people um, there who have become almost like family. They're, they're dear friends, and they've, they've sacrificed much to help us, and we just don't want to make their sacrifice in vain. And we've also become friends with the family members who believe in us. We're their last hope, and if, it, and if we drop it, then this story will go cold. So we're the last, we're the last ones carrying the torch, and we want to finish what we started. On that fourth trip that, that I went with you, now you'd mentioned ground penetrating radar. So we actually took that on the fourth trip, right? Right. Can you explain yeah. what all that, what all happened sure. there? Sure. Our, our dear friend Bob um, brought his ground penetrating radar and he was trying to help us determine, you know, was this the, the slab? And getting back to your point, Morgan, is that the slab we discovered in 1970 was destroyed. The slab that has the people in it was actually removed by the by the U.S. Navy Seabees after a typhoon had gone through the island, knocked down a bunch of palm trees. That they scraped all these palm trees off the roads, and they caught the corner of the original slab that the bodies were entombed within and pushed it into a ravine and destroyed it. And then in 1984, this house was built in the same place in front of the same post. So when we saw the we saw the, the slab, but it was oriented a little bit differently and it was further away from the post than with the photograph from 1964. So that let us know we were in the right place. And so we brought in Bob to examine the slabs around there. And we found out that, no, the bodies aren't there anymore. Um, they're actually in the debris field, the remains of the bodies. And that's why on trip number five, we need dogs because those dogs can find the remains of, of the, of the when bodies. When you say debris field, what are we talking? You're talking about the debris from the, the typhoon that came through? Correct. 
And where do you think that debris field is from the original location that you think the bodies were at? How far away is that? About 30 feet. Okay. Mm -hmm. About 30 feet. But now I got to tell you, when we were there with this ground penetrating radar, the first day that we're out there, so we fly on the island, we're staying in Bill's hotel and, um, the island of Tonawas is a 45-minute boat ride to get to from uh, the island of Chico. Yeah, yeah. When, yeah, so we've got two open bow boats, two, like two little Boston whalers that, that uh, we're using to get all of us over there. You've got to take all your food, all your water with you, all that. We get there. Bob gets his equipment up and running, and the initial reviews of his, his ground-penetrating radar were he found anomalies. And it looked like the way these anomalies were laid out, we thought, holy cow, we just found the bodies. And I mean, so much so. And, you know, we spent all day looking at that and, and he was mapping it and it was very intricate uh, what he was doing. And we got back that night. I texted my wife and I said, you were supposed to be there for two weeks. I said, you know, we'll probably be back early. I think we've already found the bodies. Yeah, I was I was very I was very suspicious because the orientation of where the slab was in the post was not correct. And I, I kept on saying, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to not walk away. And as a filmmaker as well, I said, well, at least this has, gives me a way to film because we hired a filmmaker from um, New Zealand named Ollie Dale. And he came, so he was shooting instead of me so I could focus more on, on the investigation part. And, and I wanted to give him something to film and they were going to jack this thing up. I said, well, that would be good for filming. And that would be the faint, like in a TV show, like you're, you're there, oh, all hopes are dashed. You yeah, know, well, let's let's hope thing. it's not Al Capone's vault and Geraldo Rivera all over again, right? Well, yeah, it kind of exactly. was. It kind of was. was. <laughs> it was. Because we, we, I, I knew it. I said, ah, we just wasted three days and a lot of resources and money digging what turned out to be just rocks, just piles of rocks. I'm like, why would anybody put a pile of rocks in the middle of a foundation? They just wanted to, you know, you know, fill up the void as much as they could. So we had to turn our attention back. And on the day before we left, that's when we realized the debris field was behind the actual location. We found it. Uh, so, I, so I was going to say, and I don't want to, I want to, I want us to jump back to cover why, what is it that led us to believe? How did the, how did those people in the Hawaiian Clipper uh, come to be on Tonawas? But I don't want to, I don't want to get out of context here. That's, sure. So we got more questions about the fourth trip. Yeah, we believe that the uh, the aircraft, when it landed in, in the middle of the ocean, um, the Japanese refueled it, and that's why there was uh, some fuel spillage in the water as well. Go ahead. Well, wait, what caused it to land in the ocean? Well, because we believe that's where there was a, a predetermined point for these Japanese hijackers who uh, stowed away on the plane in, in Guam. Because, see, the plane would be serviced overnight, and there was these... Uh, uh, Marine sentries who allowed at midnight to what they thought Filipino flight mechanics access to the plane to main, do some maintenance. But they never saw the Filipino flight mechanics leave the next day. This is according to the FBI who were doing the research. So uh, they said, oh, so they saw two guys get on the plane, but they never left. And then when the plane took off in the morning with its passengers and crew, it was tail heavy and its takeoff was uh, delayed. They couldn't get into the air as quickly as they could on the water, and the water was flat through Opera Harbor. So this led to the idea that there were stowaways on the plane, um, these two gentlemen. And then um, our, our, our colleague, Jim Janicki, was able to re, uh, rebuild the, how the trailing wire that, was, that we believe that was uh, demobilized 
uh, how that happened and how they were these Japanese guys were able to take over the plane. Landed at this place in in the middle of the ocean, and uh, at the time there's a book called by uh, Chief Oiken. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. I thought I had it up here. I took it down to my library, but uh, he wrote. He was a U.S. Navy uh, uh, electronics interception chief. Um, uh, based in Guam before the war and how they had intercepted a Japanese trawler, a ship going back and forth, you know, in loitering in this area where the Hawaii Clipper disappeared. And then as soon as a mayday came out that the Japanese or the Clipper had vanished, they saw that the ship was heading at full speed back to Saipan. Is that the same one that volunteered to search the area? Um, cause there was no. a, a different ship than that steamer. It was a different, yeah, okay. that was the, that was the, that was the, um, Canberra Maru that said that they had actually spotted what they thought was a Hawaii clipper in, uh, an alcove in a cove, uh, weathering a storm. And then that was refuted by the Japanese main, uh, uh, communications, whoever they are, the state, their version of the state department saying, no, 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 they were wrong. But I think they actually saw the Hawaii clipper. Um, and and reported it, but they weren't supposed to. And in the Japanese, no, they made a mistake. It wasn't the Hawaii Clipper. So why is it that you surmise or, or you believe that um, the Japanese wanted the Hawaiian Clipper? I believe they wanted it because they thought the engines were better than what they really were. Uh, the R2800 engines were considered military grade. That engine eventually wound up on some of our bombers, the B-25 Mitchells, some of our fighter planes. And, uh, you know, because those are those are radial engines. They're compact. They're not the, like the inline engines that you would have on a P-40 or uh, Warhawk uh, or on a P-51 Mustang. These are more like the Corsair type engines, you know, that's something you would use for compact space aboard a Navy ship. And at the time, the, the Japanese Zero engine uh, was a very underpowered engine. It couldn't carry a full bomb load and fuel the distance they needed to do because remember they're going to attack us at Pearl Harbor a few years later, so they're looking at any advantage they can militarily. They've they've got a building permit from some U.S. manufacturers. They're also got building Merlin engines from the from the British, so they're looking at anything they can to incorporate. And I think what they did is they wanted to steal the Hawaii Clipper because at the time it was the Concorde of its day. It was very high tech, so I think they were in. in Inquisitive, and they wanted to see what was inside of it. And these Japanese um, guys who were in the military or uh, mafia, they wanted to make money. And there was a code uh, in the Japanese military at the time that you could do something illegal as long as it was for the right reason, you wouldn't be punished. <laughs> Dang, so sign can, me up. Where's that, where's yeah. that at again? <laughs> so the Japanese, it was, so you, you know, that's why like when the Japanese blew up and they destroyed the USS Panay, the, the Japanese guys weren't punished for it because they were doing it for the right reason, but but they it was a mistake, you know, so that they wouldn't be punished because their heart was in the right place. Hell, I could have avoided a bunch of ass chewings in my career if I just had that, you know, theory <laughs> Can you imagine some of the place? defense attorneys of today? <laughs> <laughs> well, Your Honor, he did it for the right reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah, he just well, did that's it the wrong way. Pablo did kill a lot of people, and he did, you know, create and disturb, distribute tons of cocaine. But look, he built housing for poor people. He gave money to the right poor. Yeah, he gave money to the. He used his wealth for good reasons. But anyway, Pablo is room temperature. Spoiler alert, folks: Pablo's dead, as I say. Uh, he has assumed room temperature. Yeah, well, he, he's buried under a, a slab too. Um, but let's let's go back and talk about this too, because you are you're kind of at a critical juncture, like you say. You've narrowed it down. 
What's preventing you from going back? Money. Uh, we need around two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars to. We need to raise that because um, eighty nine thousand dollars of that are the specialized dogs that are called our ancestry archival search dogs. Uh, Native Americans use these types of dogs when they want to build a uh, a road or a school or something like that. And they, they search for, for ancient remains. Indian burial grounds. Yeah, ancient remains. Right. In fact, the two dogs that we were planning to use as a test. They took them into Donner Pass, where the Donner Party vanished. You know, <laughs> Alfred and, Donner, yeah, yeah, Alfred yeah, Packer, they, yeah, the Donner Pass, they oh, found the cannibalism. More, right, two years ago, they found two more people that they didn't even know were up there. These dogs did. So these dogs are shown to be very, very highly specialized tools. They're very expensive tools. So you actually have to, you have to um, train three dogs. It takes about four months, and then keep one dog back, send the other two forward, along with a vet for these dogs. And that costs around 90 grand alone. And then the rest of the money is for logistics, for sifters to go through all these little pieces of debris, looking for those bone fragments and the repatriation of the remains back to the United States. And then the DNA testing, all of that. I mean, no one's taking a dollar for a salary or anything like that. It's all going to the logistics to, you know, bring these. Wait, wait a minute. Now Murph told me he's not sleeping on that damn hotel again. He wants a, he wants a first class room on a barge somewhere out there in the lagoon. No, no, let me tell you, I'll stay in Bill's hotel anytime. Yeah. Bill's the guy he's talking about uh, that took care of us unbelievably well. Big time. It's the best accommodations in the entire country is the, is, is, is a truck stop hotel. You, if you're ever in Micronesia, you want to go to the truck stop. If if you, I find my, if I get lost and I'm flying and I land there, I will definitely do that. Well, and too, for if anybody's, you know, if you're into diving, you know trucks, you know about oh, Truck yeah. Lagoon because it's supposed to be the best wreck diving site in the entire world. Yeah. So cool stuff. Let's let's talk about from an investigative standpoint, like if this were a criminal case. Um, there are levels of like you just have mere suspicion, which is just kind of points you in a direction. You have reasonable suspicion, which means I at least have enough to take some course of action with you, like detain you, stop you. And then you have probable cause, which means we have enough now to make an arrest. Um, and then you have obviously proof beyond all reasonable doubt, which would be like if you're at a trial. Where are you in terms of what is your level of belief is that those bodies are there? 100%. Dang, one hundred percent. I beyond well, the shadow of a doubt. Well, that's proof beyond all doubt. Yes, I I believe it. Okay, we'll say ninety nine point nine percent. All right. Um, I believe the remains are in that debris field, and we just need the dogs to do that. In fact, uh, Director Michael Bay, I spoke with uh, a few weeks ago in person a couple times. He's been sending me emails, and he wants to produce a documentary on this uh, for his Bay Film uh, company. But the only the only um, tough part is I have to prove that the the remains are there, and I am on the hook for the money to do that. So, which you have been since the inception of this investigation, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, yes. what steps now? But at the same time, though, you're a NASA employee, correct? No, I am not a NASA employee. Oh. I am a. I was contracted by NASA to produce a television series for them, but I am not. I used to be, but not anymore. Okay. All right. So you're contract, and that's that's what allows you to go do this at this point, right? Because you're a contractor, right? Correct. What steps are you taking to raise the money? No steps right now. We we had um, many opportunities. We had an Expedition Five campaign 
that failed. Uh, we were not able to raise any money, not anything significant. We, we raised about $5,000 and we gave it all back because we need more than $5,000. So what um, makes it and, so tough to raise money? You think besides, I mean, everybody say, well, it's the economy, but it is, do people understand? I mean, what it is you're trying to do to that point. I mean, it's like, quite frankly, when you say that the first thing people go to, Oh, Amelia Earhart, everybody knows that. How many people know about the lost clipper? Very few, but Murphy could tell you he's he's had various experiences of very well-to-do people who would say, "Yeah, we're all in." All of a sudden, they just ghost us. I mean, you, what do you think, Murph? Well, I think uh, part of it, believe it or not, is is the COVID pandemic. You know, the last couple of years, because the island of uh, the country of Chuuk, which is where all this is located in Micronesia, was closed down. You know, they would not allow people in or out because they didn't want they didn't want the virus coming in. Um, even to the point where Bill's wife got stuck in Guam, right? Right, right. And she he got was stuck over in, in, uh, on, in uh, Chuuk, and they didn't see each other for, what, almost two years? Yeah, almost two years. Oh, my God. So, oh, so they probably got uh, along famously during that time then, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like me and Connie. The more I'm gone, the stronger the better our relationship you get, yeah, The better you get apart. But uh, I think another thing is... Um, you know, we've, I know, especially Guy uh, working on this has approached numerous networks. We've had different networks say they want to go. One in particular, it made it, everybody approved it until travel it got to channel. the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. Travel and channel. And he's, what they want is they want a piece of physical evidence, not circumstantial evidence. They want something they can hold in their hand. Um, you know, so like when I first got involved with this, Guy and, and Jeff gave me a Japanese rice bowl that I still have which was from the pre-World War II days that they discovered over there on, on some of their adventures. Um, it, I mean, it really doesn't prove anything about the Lost Clipper because we knew that was Admiral Yamamoto's headquarters. So, you know, we knew there was going to be stuff like that. But just, it's like, it's like you hit the nail on the head, guy, when you said this. It's an adventure. Life is a freaking adventure, man. I mean, if, if you don't take advantage, advantage of the adventures that are out there and take a little risk every once in a while, to me, life just seems kind of dull. Well, here, I have the solution for you. Do you guys want to know the solution? Here's how you, you get your $250,000 in your bank account. No, that you're gonna uh, uh, no, no. <laughs> that's Murph money. I don't have that kind of Pablo money <laughs> right. around. Um, <laughs> no, have you? So I'm just thinking the way a geologist would, and I'm thinking, what would I do to prove that was there? Why don't you just go get core samples? Why don't you just go have, why don't you just go there, take core samples in an area you, you can actually predict this. Oil people do this. Other people do this. You know that if you take them in a certain pattern, high probability that you'll, you'll get a core sample of what you're looking for. Just bring those core samples back, analyze them, and then get your proof. Well, you can't do a core sample because it's a debris field and you're looking for pieces of bone. But yeah, so, no, no, I get that. That's what I'm saying is that in a sense, like a core sample, but I'm saying you could take something that would go down, capture everything within that field, but go down, say 20 feet, grab the dirt, grab the grass, everything, you know, and then bring it back. I, I, the reason I'm asking is because I don't have the same history you guys do. So I don't know what you guys know and what you don't know. All I'm thinking is as an outside guy, I'm thinking even with a debris field, if I would go there and I would take samples uh, you know, and go down through, in a sense, like a core sample, but just take, start from the air above it, a foot above, and then just go down through with the core and just take ground, take everything, and then just bring it back, uh, you know, take a look at it. I don't, I don't know what you guys, what stops that or what's the, uh, what are the implications of that are? Sure. Well, part of that is that um, you're, you're doing, you're trying to do core samples and I, I don't know what the odds would be of actually getting a direct strike on, on a piece of bone fragment 
if you do multiple core samples, you know. So that's the first thing is the cost. You know, how much does that cost? Who is going to who is going to do the core sampling? Where's the equipment going to come from logistically? How are you going to get it there? And then who's going to process and test that core sample stuff after? The third thing that was stopping us at the time was um, the island was closed. Now right. it's open again, so we can go back. But um, it's, again, raising money, you know, because I put in over $100,000 of my own money into this over the past 22 years that I've been doing this. Um, since uh, 1999 is when I actually started uh, this, this, this effort. And um, basically, you know, my family's like, yeah, no more money. <laughs> you, you use, raise it yourself, do it yourself. So if I'm going to go back, I need to do, go back with the dogs and use their noses to tell me where these parts are and then just do the, you know, do the sifting of the soil and find these um, bone fragments. So you know, we've we've met with production companies. Uh, we actually filmed some teaser reels, some sizzle reels to to try to to try to garner interest from the different networks. And everybody's interested. They just but they want see, that initial proof. Show me something. Give me something I can put in my hand. Right. Well, I have an idea for you. Um, oh, here we go, guy. <laughs> Do you have two hundred fifty thousand dollars in your thing? That you can no, give us? no. But I know a place okay. where you can get some bones and some uh, debris and everything and mix it all together and say, "There it is." No. Uh, uh, I, I had but, thought of that at one time. I had, I I, here's your evidence. You know, you just don't tell them exactly where it came from. You just say, "This is it. This is from a debris field." Yeah, and then they'll say, "Hey, this this came from Kentucky Fried Chicken." What? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> what? Well, my, my dog keeps gnawing on that. Bone. You wanted <laughs> you wanted debris, I, so you put it out in your yard. You take a sample. Anyway, we we digress. So, hey, but where where does this lead you? I mean, you're you're on this adventure, but now this is probably one of the biggest obstacles I would say you face, which is it's not the issue of knowing where to look and knowing what to do. It's the issue of raising money. So what 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 do you do now? Now, okay, now they're opening up the islands and stuff. Is this is this thing, you know, I don't I don't want you to put a stake through the heart of this right now, but are you how confident are you that you'll get the money? Um, I've never put a number on it. Um, because I, I'm still talking to people, you know, like Michael Bay, and there's another producer that Jeff connected me to that we're talking with him. But um Unless one of us wins the lottery or one of us uh, meets someone who's willing to take a chance on us, because um, there is a there are a couple payoffs on the back end for this for the right person. So I've, I'm always open minded. I'm always got my hand out. I'm always looking. I won't ever stop looking. But right now we're not going until we actually have the money to raise. So the right bucks. now it's it's harder to find the money than it is to find the bodies. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, we know where the bodies are. We just. Hey, that's you know copyrighted. What? You can't use that without permission of Ricky Bobby Inc. I just want you guys okay. to know that. Thank you very much. Got it. Right. Got it. You know, we need to get Christy Schiller in on this because you talk about somebody could raise money. She yeah, can do she's it. she's connected. She's connected with people. We know people who are connected. So awesome. well, look, um good idea. Let's let's kind of wrap this part here. Well, you finish up because I want to get into yeah. what he's working on now. Go ahead. So yeah, and and so if we we working with you guy can find these bodies. What would, what's the outcome of all this? How, you know, other than bringing answers to 15 families, mm -hmm. tell us, tell us what this, how this would change things. Oh, it would change. Well, first of all, it would change history. Literally World War II, the start date for the United States entry in World War II would have to be changed from December 7th, 1941 to July 29, 1938, because state sponsored air piracy is an act of war. So you have 15 Americans who were killed for these uh, these uh, Japanese saboteurs who were 
I wouldn't say this was state sponsored, but I'd say it was more. It was. It was. Well, they were proxies the for the government. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, that would change history. So literally, all the history books would have to be changed. Number two, uh, this brings closure, as Murph said, to to fifteen families. Um, who some of them are still alive and, and want an answer where the relatives. It brings these remains and repatriates them back to the United States because we don't like to leave anyone behind. So I, almost like the missing, missing in action type folks because half of them were military service members. So they do deserve to come home because some of them were, I believe, on various military operations. Some of them were actually on missions going to the middle or going to uh, China to observe the Japanese fighting. Um, the third thing is it brings closure to me as well as because I've been working on this for 22 years. I, I want to finish this thing. Uh, fourth is it's a financial vehicle for the right people because um, we've gotten so much interest. We got interest from Steven Spielberg, Michael Bay, uh, some major production companies who all want to turn this into a feature film and a documentary series. And so this is something that most people would love to pay for to watch because there aren't too many Stories. Hollywood is notoriously unimaginative. That's why they keep doing rehashes and rehashes and sequels and prequels and everything, because they don't have a lot of new original content. This is new and original. This tells a story partially of Amelia Earhart that no one's ever heard of. And then a story that most people never even heard. Even though we've all heard of Pan Am Airways, we we don't know about the very first hijacking in history. It's a very interesting story. Especially if it's true. Well, Wasn't me, Peter Berg interested in this as well? He was. Peter Berg was also interested. But again, it comes down to the evidence. If we can find evidence, we're going to be fighting people off. I think people will be throwing money at us then to make a movie and a TV series. And I think that's whoever ends up writing us a check for that 250 k is going to get a lot more back, not only financially, but um, historically and, and, and philo- uh, philanthropically. Well, and two other things I can think of. One, this would be the first skyjacking in the history of the world, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, this, and the one thing that we kind of opened with, talking about Amelia Earhart, this is this could provide the link that may finally bring a definitive answer what really happened to Amelia. Right. You know, now that that is, uh, I, I think you'd probably agree, that's a long shot. Yeah, yeah. And for the record, I believe Amelia was cremated, and that's why you'll never, ever find her bones, because she was cremated. But we had, remember the meeting we had there at the restaurant there in Quantico, mm-hmm. Virginia? Yep. Um, Rick Spooner, Major Rick Spooner. Yeah, and they, and they actually had a bandana that they believed was the bandana that was placed over Amelia Earhart's eyes when she was assassinated by the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And they and that day, believe it or not, that day they had just gotten the letter back where they'd sent the bandana off to be tested because they it, it contained what they believed were blood splatters from her blood. Right. But the letter came back inconclusive, if I remember correctly. Right, because it wasn't blood, it was sweat. And there wasn't enough DNA material that they could pull from to determine whose sweat it was. So this this thing just it keeps going. It's, it's one of the most interesting uh, investigations I've ever heard of. The fact that that you could, oh man, I'm just put yourself in the in the shoes of the family members of the people that were on the Hawaiian Clipper. And you, and your family member goes off. I mean, we, heck, we all fly all around the world now doing our business. And one day your spouse gets a call and says, just disappeared. We don't know what happened. Well, and I tell you, I, th- I think of that and the Malaysian, you know, MH370 that totally disappeared. You know, it's like nothing mm-hmm. has been found. I mean, there are mysteries. But look, I look at it this way. If we can find out who Jack the Ripper was after all this time, which now they've definitively found out who that person was, they've identified him. It's not all of these other theories that everybody else had. Um, I think that you will be able to find, I, I mean, I, I 
thoroughly believe is that history detectives like what you're doing armed with the right information, the right technology, because the technology has advanced so much, you can do what they could not do 15 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago and provide closure to this. Yes. And and I actually like to clarify, they did find debris from that 747. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Later I'm talking about, yeah. but for so, I yeah, mean, yeah, it yeah. was two years. Yeah. 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 Two years. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. as we've probably figured out now, the pilot, I digress. Let's get back into talk about what you're doing now. So, um, because right before we came on air, as they say, as they say in the business, right before we came on air, you were talking about a very interesting project you just wrapped up, speaking of for NASA. So let's talk about what you're working on now. Sure. So we're working on a 12-part series called Hollywood in Space, and it's about the public-private partnership between NASA and Hollywood filmmakers. So your Michael Bay's, Ridley Scott, Ron Howard, Ted Melfi, William Shatner, I mean, uh, uh, these guys all came to NASA to help them tell their stories, either through Armageddon, Apollo 13, even Transformers. You know, they they want that, you know, NASA can only sometimes, you know, stand in for the real deal. So, like, in fact, we interviewed Joss Whedon, who did the first Avengers movie, you know, with, uh, you know, the all the, you know, the, the Marvel characters. But they needed to film it in a facility at Plum Brook Station, which is now Armstrong Station in Cleveland, Ohio. And they filmed there. So NASA gives them access or expertise into things that they really want. We interviewed uh, director Roland Emmerich, who did Independence Day and Moonfall, because he wanted to work with NASA and and how, you know, astronauts would work in space. How do we pull a, a moon a space shuttle out of a museum and get it ready to fly again? You know, is that possible? How would you do it? And he and he basically worked with NASA to figure that out. So that's so it's a twelve part series that will that will air on NASA television and the NASA Plus app, and uh, they're about twelve to fifteen minutes each. So they're very digestible on a on a on a portable device, you know. And I, I we're hoping for season two and three and and more because it came out better than anyone expected. Well, it came out better than it expected because you have a little bit of a history of winning some hardware yourself. So let's talk about some of the hardware yeah. you've won, how many you've won them for, and uh, why haven't you made a why haven't you made my life story, man? That that would get you an Oscar at least. You know? <laughs> no, it's a bit yeah. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a joke yeah, for sure. <laughs> we won a couple uh, Emmys, uh, but we it's it's not so much about. I I usually don't even you know apply for any uh, any awards because. Um, I know deep inside that that's the reason I did it. I, I mean, getting recognition is one thing, but uh, I, I I live behind the camera. I usually don't even put my name on things just because I just want to just be a part of something and get it done. I don't really look for the recognition. It's nice, and I appreciate being recognized, but um, that's not the motivation at all. Well, what have you been recognized for? Yes. So, yeah, so the, the Emmys were for Just a Common Soldier, which we did with Stephen Klaus. Yes. And, and that uh, is, a, if you guys go to YouTube, you can see that that is, I mean, I saw that when it first came out. Stephen actually sent me a link, and it's like, what a, what a story. Phenomenal. Yeah, that was that was first project ever worked with Stephen on, and uh, for Stephen Klaus and Associates. And then uh, we worked on uh, various other projects for other clients, and uh, we won a couple... Um, I forgot what they call them, not Webbies, some other type of words. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, it's just nice. Thank you for, for the recognition, but it's onwards and upwards. I think I think uh, the series, the, the NASA series could definitely be Emmy worthy. 
but if they didn't win anything, it wouldn't matter because they were fun to do. Yeah, but but at some point though, here let me give you a pro tip. You want to raise money. It's good to have some recognition so people know you were the voice or that you were the person behind the camera because they need to know when they see they say what are you going to get for this and now you can point you can say here's my credits here's what I did it's not so much to brag but it's to say you want an example of the kind of quality and the stuff we do yes here's my here's my here's my portfolio hmm, in a sense idea. And who, okay who did the reading on just a common soldier uh, that was Tony Lobianco. Yeah, the actor. The actor. Yeah, from he did the French Connection and a couple other feature films. He's pretty well known. The Good French guy. Connection. Did you pick your toes in Poughkeepsie? That was Popeye Doyle, <laughs> famous line from that. No, but I'm serious. No, I'm, I'm, I, and I'm saying that from the heart too, because um, uh, it's good that you're humble like that. But let me tell you what, humble doesn't pay the bills. And at some point, Will Rogers said, it ain't bragging if you can do it. So don't be, don't be braggadocious. You can say, look, here's the things that I've done. And I would list out those things. And having Emmys behind your name is more about credibility than it is anything else. Because it says, look, I've achieved mastery of my work. I'm to the point now to when I do this kind of work, these are the people who are involved because I think that's what they're looking for too. I, I, you, I mean, you probably have a well-known name within that, but but for people who are going to pay money that don't know who you are, that's true. Ask a William Shatner; he'll say that guy, that that guy, that guy, guy, the guy who came to my house when I was what away. Yeah, what a guy! Yeah, I know a guy. I got a guy. <laughs> but but I think I think for fundraising, I think you've got to, you've got to put your name on it. You got to put your stamp on it. You got to put a face on it and say this is the face of Guy Knopfinger, and this is what I've done, and this is why when you put two hundred fifty k into it. This is the product you're going to get. So therefore, I will accept my position as the executive vice president of marketing for the Lost Clever LLC. And uh, you're we hired. <laughs> you're hired. We, oh, we you have an agent. You're getting yourself into yeah. a guy. <laughs> it's funny because Steve and I both have the same agent. You know, Daniel Schmertz from United same here. Uh, TA, UTA. So we're all connected. So we ought to need to make this happen. Yeah, you, you got the agents. You just got to, dude. Um, look. This shit don't sell itself. I'm sorry, you know, Steve yeah, Jobs. Yeah. And I will give you here's a quick, just a quick business lesson, and just very short one. Uh, superior marketing in an average product always beats average marketing in a superior product. And for years, oh, Apple was beat by Microsoft, even though they had a superior product, a superior platform. Microsoft beat them. Why? Because they had superior marketing. And so hmm. when you can combine your product now with good marketing, I think that this, this is what's going to break it open for you. You've got to market this the same way, you, uh, you know, somebody would market an investment in a startup company or something. What, you know, Hey, look, you're, you, you're a storyteller, tell the story, but you got to, you got to put your, you got to, you got to put you guy Nossinger, got to put your name on it, got to put your face on it and say, this is me. This is what we're building. And when it comes out, Take take uh, Jeff Bezos's approach. What they did at Amazon: write a press release about what it would be like and what's going to happen when this thing is done. It's going to get an Oscar. It's going to get an Emmy. It's going to get a Webby or whatever those things are. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not so much the hardware you're getting. It's that when you do this and you produce a quality product, here's the result of that quality. Because you know what people what people get excited about? They want to live vicariously. So these people who invest in movies do it because they can't be the Tom Cruises or the Brad Pitts. They want to they want to hang out with him though. You know, they want to be there. They were hired. I'm an executive producer. I'm an executive producer on this series. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, you know what we say about Morgan is he, he he will talk to you till your ears bleed. Most people just give in and say, okay, 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 just don't well, talk anymore. Why do you think I got all those conf- <laughs> By the way, I used to teach interview and interrogation out at the National Security Agency to the FBI, to uh, state and local law enforcement. And I said, look, my technique, 
I just talk until you say, shut the hell up. I'll tell you whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's a new form of torture. New form of torture. <laughs> hey, well, Guy, let's let's leave with this. So um, first of all, you sandbagged us a little bit on your Navy stuff like Tom Kirk did. By the way, mm-hmm. how would you like to have a name like Thomas Kirk work up through the ranks and then you get promoted to captain and everybody introduces you as Captain Kirk? That's what they did. Adam. And they would make the whoosh down, you know, of him when he would enter a room, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Captain Kirk has left the building. Captain Kirk has left the building. Um, so, you know, you, but, but for you though, I mean, you're doing these projects, but um, out of all of these things, what, what, what's the one thing you've done that you've been most proud of out of all the work you've done? You've served our country, served in intelligence, you know, retired um, as an officer and a gentleman, I would say. See, you left that part out, an officer and a gentleman. What, what do you, if, when you look back on this stuff, what are you going to be most proud of? Career or family? Yeah, either, anything. Well, family first. Family first, you know, so I, I have a, a great family, you know, and uh, so and I come from a good legacy. So I'm, you know, I live in, a, in the best country in the world. So I'm grateful for, for that, for my flag, that I serve my flag and I serve my fellow countrymen. So I'm most proud about that is my service to my country. And uh, that's what I think I'm most proud of. And I know I know guys family and, and they stand behind him 110 uh, percent. Um, Lori's got to be a saint. <laughs> Just, but you know, if nothing else, based on the amount of money you spend on this project out of your own pocket. Yeah, that's why but, my kid's uh, not going to college. <laughs> hey, guess what? She's GI Bill away, works buddy. for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he has, has a very impressive daughter. Yeah, she's amazing. Yes. In fact, she gets a screen credit on my on the NASA series because she drew uh, a robot from Lost in Space and we used it in the episode. So she actually oh, cool. gets her first screen credit on the series. Wow. Cool. Danger, Will Robinson, which, by the way, was never said in the original series. Everybody thinks it was, but it was. Right. Um, That's funny. Yeah. No, it's great, great stuff. Hey, no, but professionally, let me ask you this out of all, if this were to get made, I know out of all those things to you, but is it more just that you want to get this made because you've put 22 years into it and you know, Hey, I just, you know, it's sunk cost bias or is this, is this at some point you've crossed the threshold, my friend, this has become not professional. This sounds like it's become personal. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, yeah. I want, yeah, I want to complete this project because um, I I always finish what I start, and um, and I have to finish this. It's like I can't watch a TV show, even though if it sucks, I have to finish it because I got to see how it ended. So <laughs> You're great I for have, advertisers. I'll stick through all the ads. I got to see how this. I have to. I got to see how it ends. You know. So yeah. So I, it's it's because I owe something to this, these families who invested their belief and their time in me and giving me information and photos and things that they could. So I want to finish it for them, and I want to finish it for me because I want to finish what I started. Well, too, you, when you joined the military, you took an oath, right? Pretty much the same oath that you and I took, Morgan. I and state just, your name. I state your name, which they say and, in the Navy. And just simply because... And an animal I, house. I, I love this, uh, this little saying I've coined is, just because we retired doesn't mean that our oaths ever expired. Right. So the way I'm looking at this is this is a cold case file from 80 years ago involving the fi- the murder of 15 American citizens. You know, it's it, the assassination it it's an, of first 15 yep. American citizens. Yeah. Personally, it's an adventure that I'm I'm loving being a part of, and I thank Guy for bringing me into it. But the same token, you know, if we can help those families, oh my gosh, I just that would be something to be proud of. Well, but it's it it's be. also when you think about it too, you're talking about it, very few people get the chance to rewrite history. 
right. for the right reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that you can add clarity to our un- understanding of how the war started, what was involved in it, and all the in- intricacies, um, I think is would be would serve generations because we we've gone too far in terms of wiping out history. If you get to the point where you wipe out so much history, you never learn from it, and you will repeat that same yeah. mistake again because you have not learned. Exactly. And ask to go to China, try to try to Google Tiananmen Square. Well, you can't Google because Google's not there. Try to search for Tiananmen Square. You have a generation of people growing up in China that do not understand how many thousands of people died during that and, yeah. and what it means. So, I mean, I just, this is, to me, history is sacrosanct. You don't have to like it. You don't have to love it. History is what it is. And um, it's it's there for us to uncover and discover. So I think you're on a, I think this is the great adventure. So we will. Yeah, so for for all our listeners and players out there, if you got, got two hundred and fifty k laying around, <laughs> yeah, get a hold of us here at Game of Crimes, and we'll connect you with Guy. We'll get this hey, thing we rolling. We can all go. Hey, by the way, let's let's not leave with that. You got a website? Uh, yes, we have lostclipper.com. See, we almost got through the study and say, well, where can we go get more information? Lostclipper.com. They could, that's, that's where if people want to know more information and connect with you and drop a two hundred and fifty k check, they can do it at lostclipper.com. Right. Yes, and we'll make sure that you get the presidential suite at the hotel, and uh, so you can supervise <laughs> everything while we're on the island. You will get carte blanche, free scuba diving, and free tour of all the wrecks uh, during our down days. So, but you might you, have Klaus sleeping in your living room. Yeah, right there on a cot <laughs> with using 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 a washcloth as his as his as his blanket. Yeah, that was fun. I don't want to know what he's covering with that washcloth. That will be another episode. <laughs> We, we we will dive into that. Well, hey, look, I can't believe, you know, so we'll have to get together for coffee or something. We'll get together and compare notes because I have a couple other ideas. Um, some of them involve UFOs, but hey, it's not it's not as far-fetched as you think. <laughs> but, you know, I'll tell you, I actually saw one. Actually, I've actually seen a real UFO. Hey, let me tell you, I would, I would say that you were like Randy Quaid, speaking of Independence Day, like, hello, boys, you know, I'm back. Until until they started. Well, de- I didn't get probed or anything. So how do you know? <laughs> if they're smart Ooh, enough to pick true. you up from the earth, they can probe you without you feeling <laughs> well, it. Speaking yeah. of probing, which we are going I tomorrow. It. I didn't feel it. <laughs> okay. There's a difference. But but as much as they're declassifying stuff, and when I hear naval pilots and air force pilots of talking about, hey, there's unexplained shit here. I'm going, okay, you cannot, uh, and I'll tell you what really made it sink in. Sorry, less digression here. But when I saw the picture from the the telescope, uh, the Webb telescope, and I saw that picture, I'm going, how can there not be life out there? And the proof that there's intelligent life out there is they're smart enough not to contact us. Probably. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw, when I, I tell you, I saw a light in the sky that was glowing, and it and it did a Z pattern that was flying it was i don't know how fast it was it was going very very fast but it flew and it turned in two 90 degree angles immediately and nothing in nature can or do man-made that. Yeah. can do that can do that and it made no noise it was silent but i could see it very very clear coming towards me and made two z turns two 90 degree turns immediately where were you what's colorado Colorado Springs, Colorado. Did you weren't into the shrooms or anything out there, were you? Not at all. Never done a drug in my life. <laughs> so you know what's out in Colorado? Why would the UFOs be out there? Maybe some little place called uh, NORAD. NORAD, little mountain there. You know, with the I've been, been actually been to NORAD. Had a meeting out there uh, one time. So very it just happens to be located in Colorado, Colorado Springs. Springs. Yeah. That's where I grew up. 
Yeah, my best friend's dad worked at NORAD, so I was very familiar with it. But uh, yeah, I saw that thing do a Z pattern over my head, and I knew that was not a plane or anything. It, it was something, uh, it's unidentified. All right, you know? so Guy's new project is called UFOsightingsllc.com. We will be uh, standing <laughs> that one up, and uh, there'll be a whole new, I'm on that. So you get me hooked up with William Shatner, because William needs to listen to this podcast. So you get me hooked up with Bill Shatner, and we will we will go uh, boldly go where no man has gone before. And that's what's going to happen tomorrow. Somebody's going to go where no man has gone before. But uh, we, I digress. <laughs> uh, no, it's even worse than that. that. It's even the worse than that. What is that? No, no, it's worse than that. It, you know, it's the it's what men have to do when you get over fifty and over sixty. You have to have those things done on a regular basis. So anyway, Roto Rooter. There you go. Brodo Rooter, that's the name. Flush your troubles, away, no troubles down the drain. Down the drain. <laughs> okay, this we got to bring this up to an oh, end yeah, because this, other, is this is getting bad. All right, so hey, we want to thank you. And what was your final rank there, uh, Lieutenant? Yeah, Lieutenant? It was Lieutenant. I I was Lieutenant Commander Select. If I stayed, I would have you were promotable to O four, right? So Lieutenant, right, so, yeah, so Lieutenant Guy Nofsinger, United States Navy, uh, a branch of the U.S. Marines. So. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, so the army, weren't you? Hooah. Well, hooah. Anyway, yes. Hey, this is this has been a true honor yeah. to have you come on and tell this story. This is a story that the world needs to hear, that needs to know. It is a part of our history. Um, thank you so much for introducing me to this, uh, bringing me on to the project. But more than anything, thanks for coming on and telling your story to our listeners here on Game of Crimes, brother. This is true a true honor. Please give uh, give your family my regards. I will. And thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you to the listeners who hung in it this long. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that website again? One more time, Guy. Lostclipper.com. So you guys go there. And Guy, everybody hold still. The rest of you guys, this is the end of it. Stay tuned for the debrief. Well, Guy was a funny guy, but the other thing, too, is he kind of got the law laid down by his wife. Quit spending the family inheritance on this. Go out and raise some money. So if you folks want to be part of this, now go to LostClipper.com. Not what Steve told you in the beginning, just LostClipper.com. Pulls up a really great website, talks about the investigation, the team, and everything else. But Steve, I got to tell you, this is like the ultimate cold case. I mean, you have got – it has to exist somewhere. They've got records. They've got stuff. Um, I mean, things like this just do not disappear without any trace. It, I mean, even back then it couldn't. And, and the, the tie into the Japanese, World War II, and why they were on that mission and the money, because if you're hearing this now, we didn't do a spoiler at the beginning. The fact is that they were trying to, it appears, right, try to ransom Amelia Earhart. Absolutely. And there was there's even more to this story that we just didn't get into, um, uh, stories about uh, there were a couple of people on that on the Pan Am Clipper that on the Hawaiian Clipper that were, believe it or not, taking air samples to see if the Chinese could launch chemical weapons against the United States that would travel through the atmosphere and make it all the way to the United States. There's so many more parts of the story that we didn't didn't get into. It's unbelievable. Um, I think about we talked about change in history. This could be the first act of war against the United States by the Japanese, not Pearl Harbor. It's the first skyjacking in the history of the world may bring a final answer to the what happened to the 15 Americans. And if you're a family member, you'd certainly want to know that. And touching on the disappearance of Amelia Earhart the year before, 
everybody's interested in her. That's like you mentioned Amelia Earhart. Everybody knows Pablo Escobar's name. Everybody knows Amelia Earhart's name as well. And but nobody, very few people know about the Lost Clipper. Right. And I'm not sure if we, I don't remember now if we've touched on this, but one of our team members, there's actually a lady named Amelia Earhart who's alive today who's a pilot. She's also a personality out in Colorado. Um, she reenacted the original Amelia Earhart's flight around the world, but she did it in a modern day plane. And the plane she was in was, you know, she was sponsored and so forth. It was a miraculous, uh, the plane itself was miraculous. But she's on board with us. So we've got Amelia Earhart investigating the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. It's pretty cool stuff. Well, you found her, Murph. Case closed. (laughs) She's a lot younger than she was in 1937. That's right. Hey, you know, it's Mary Kay. Does wonders for you. Just keep using that Mary Kay. Benjamin Button. It's a case of Benjamin Button. That's right. Well, hey, guys. Uh, So anyway, no, look, fantastic episode. And thank you again to Guy, number one, for serving our country like you did. Yes. And number two, he goes from just somebody who... As we're finding out with a lot of these folks like this, they didn't finish college or high school. You know, they, they started going their own way because they were really committed to something and winning Emmys, doing yeah. stuff for NASA, producing stuff for these folks. I mean, the quality of the stuff that he does is just beyond compare. So it really is. You got to watch his stuff on NASA. They just finished a 12 part series and they got the interview. James T. Kirk, yeah. the Kirk. Not not yeah. not Captain Kirk, uh, Tom Kirk from our previous episode, but the real James Tiberius Kirk, William Shatner, you know, and all those people. So, I mean, how fun is that? So he's got a great story. Yes, he does. He does. And and we can't thank you enough for continuing to support us here. We appreciate you uh, every week coming back. Tell your friends, tell a neighbor, tell anybody to listen to you to come and check us out at Game of Crimes and on Patreon. That's right. So, hey, hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. Let people know you like it. Hey, look, it's magic. We don't know how it works. We just know it does. Uh, It's like Magic Kingdom, David Copperfield, David Blaine. Name your favorite street musician, musician, magician, all (laughs) rolled up into one. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show. We constantly update it. We'll keep uh, doing things as we add episodes to it. Also, follow us on the social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And uh, check us out on PayPal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com if you just want to do a quick pause for the cause or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. And like Murph said, where you got to be is on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Our special episodes like 911, What's Your Emergency? You Can't Make This Shit Up. Um, We've got our continuing episode, episode three of The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos, Cali Edition is coming out. And we've already seen people changing their subscription level from Evil is Coming to Guardian of the Realm because they want to hear the story. And trust me, folks, it's worth it. 16 hours of the stuff you will not get anywhere else except right here, right here, right now. Just so go do it right now. Murph and I are going to stay here until you go on and I see the counter go up. So, okay, we're waiting. Go. Tick tock. Tick tock. Yeah. Okay. Well, well okay. This, we can do it virtually now. So anyway, so guys, just do that. But hey, look, we really appreciate you guys. And really, seriously, appreciate all your support, all of the great comments you're leaving over on iTunes and Spotify for us. We're very inspired by it. Um, and you know that over time, uh, as you look at the comments and stuff, one of the things that is always there is are the great episodes. And not because we don't, because we find great guests. Right. And it's their story. You know, so uh, Natasha, Guy, uh, you know, some of the folks that we've talked to recently, Michael Franzisi. So just head on over there. Keep doing that. And we want to thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. The 80-year-old case-closing ep- episode podcast we call Game of Crimes. Mm-hmm.